not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au or 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Matt Grantham and joining me today is Anthony Daniel. Anthony, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? Very good. And uh, who have we got in the studio with us today? Offshore Energy is a Melbourne-based company working to identify suitable locations for offshore wind projects in Australia. They are currently working with the federal government to develop Australia's first onshore wind farm off the coast of Gippsland, Victoria. Andy Evans is their managing director and he joins us in the studio today. G'day, Andy. Hi, Matt. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. We always start these interviews because we have a lot of young and upcoming people who want to forge a path in this industry. So how did you get started and, and land where you are? I'm happy to be referred to as young as well. Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> no, the other people are young, not you. Of course. <laughs> of course. Look, I'm a lawyer in the area, but I've generally been involved in energy and resources for about 18 years, starting out in the uh, the darker world of, of mining with some large Australian companies and then moving more into the renewable space in 2006 with the Spanish company Axiona, who have now been in the country for about 12 years now. So through a process of evolution, working in onshore wind projects and biomass, I moved into looking at newer sort of larger renewables technologies and came across offshore wind with two partners about five years ago and really sort of see that as a path going forward, uh, particularly for Australia. Offshore energy, as you said, has been around since about 2012. Has it been a full-time gig for you? I mean, it's always interesting when you're trying to get these projects up. There's no income coming in. Has it been a full-time thing or have you been working on other projects? What's what's happening? Yeah, look, I've been working on other projects. I think as most listeners will know, Getting involved in the startup arena, and particularly in renewables, can be a long and torturous path. Uh, but look, after starting the company in 2012, it was very much a part-time gig for about three years. Right. It's really only been the last two years, and particularly the last nine months, where it's become more full-time. When I say full-time, I mean full-time in terms of exertion for myself, certainly not in terms of returns at this stage. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah full-time returns without full-time work, that's good. Yeah, so what are your day-to-day activities? Like, what stages have you gone through up to this point and, and what fills your days now to try to get it up and running? Yeah, look, for the last seven years I've been working uh, look, as an independent consultant, particularly in the renewables area. Uh, the last nine months have really brought about the need for me to be pretty much full-time in the role of Managing Director of Offshore Energy. So... Most of this year has been spent working with the Commonwealth Government, trying to get uh, the rights for the project and working in uh, determining how we can draw investor interest into the project. At the moment, I say I'm 90% working on the project, but that's probably about 90% of a 70-hour week. Yeah. So it's pretty much full-time. Okay. And, and uh, in terms of offshore wind, that's something that we haven't seen a lot of in Australia. It's obviously been built in Europe for, for a number of years here. Can you give us a dummy's insight, if you like, in the, the differences in terms of offshore and onshore uh, wind in the Australian context? Yeah, look, offshore wind, obviously the turbines are placed out in the ocean. Generally, you're looking at distances far enough away from the coast so that they don't create a, a massive visual impact. But you're looking at turbines at least twice the size at the moment. Uh, offshore as opposed to onshore at the moment, 
with that forecast to get to probably three times the size within five years, which is when we hope to start constructing the project. So you have a multitude of, of different issues as well when you're out at sea. Obviously, you've got uh, a marine life that you need to deal with and other circumstances in terms of construction of projects. But is that a permanent trend? Like, So there is a, a ceiling, if you like, on what size can happen on onshore. Is that more to do with public expectation or what can, can work there? What is driving the, the offshore turbines being so much larger? Yeah, look, onshore winds are restricted generally, particularly in Australia, by civil aviation requirements. Right. So the tip height can only get so large. Uh, and given, whilst we think of ourselves as a very large country, as soon as you are close enough to an airport, you're going to have issues. Uh, mm. You generally cannot build onshore wind farms within 15 kilometres of, of an airport in Australia. So you're really capped, particularly with tip height, blade height, as to how large it can get. But is that a direct hazard to the plane, or is it affecting wind speeds? Uh, could it affect turbulence in that area as well? It's more a safety issue. Right. There are also other issues in terms of onshore wind farms. Because all the logistics are done on land, roads aren't made to accommodate transporting large blades, and they are getting bigger and bigger. Right. You know, some of the larger blades at the moment have a look up to 130 metre diameter, uh, and there's only so many roads that can accommodate that. Something like maybe Ikea should yeah. get involved <laughs> with. What do you reckon? Do you reckon that? And uh, just in terms of the depths that the wind turbines can get put on, Andy, I did see, incidentally, and it's, it's probably not the technology you're doing, people looking at sort of floating uh, wind turbines in, in, in other parts of the world, but what's a typical depth or a typical geography where it might be particularly well suited to uh, offshore wind in terms of depth and, and, and uh, general dynamics of the, of the oceanography there? Yeah, ideally you don't want water depths deeper than 40 metres. Anything beyond that is when you start looking at floating turbines. So you probably will have seen off the coast of Scotland last week the new high wind project from Statoil. Uh, that's a floating, uh, using floating turbines. Their size is generally capped um, at a smaller size than if you're in shallower waters you use fixed monopiles, which is basically rolled steel, uh, which gets piled into the seabed down to about 20 to 30 metres. And then you have your your towers put on top of that. And uh, what are the benefits? I mean, that's the one thing about Australia, right? That we are, you know, we've got a country of 25 million people and a lot of fantastic renewable resources, including a lot of onshore wind, has not been tapped yet. Mm. So what is the general benefit of going offshore? Yeah, from a physical perspective, there's a much higher uh, capacity factor, meaning that the wind just blows more consistently for longer periods. Right. With an onshore wind farm, typically you'd look at what they call a gross capacity factor above 40%. So you're generally generating at the turbine for 40% or utilisation um, at the turbine. When you go offshore, you're looking really up to 60% capacity factor in terms of generation at the turbine. So you, you're constantly blowing a lot more. You also have very different wind profiles. If you look at the onshore projects, particularly in Western Victoria, most of the wind comes on and mirrors solar. So during the day, right. it's very similar. So if it's sunny and it's windy, it's great. You've got a lot of energy, but it's all coming at the one time when demand may not be there. With offshore wind, particularly at the site that we're looking at at the Star of the South, it's consistent flow throughout the day and certainly ramping up towards peak demand times from 4.30 through to 8 o'clock. Okay, fantastic. So th those are the benefits, but w w the the cost of installation and maintenance or can you is is that significantly higher or is it really just the first installation that where where, it is, where it's tricky? You look at the moment it is still significantly higher, and that's been part of the barrier to the introduction of offshore wind globally. 
in Australia, it's never really been looked at because of the global experience. However, things are changing markedly, particularly in markets such as Germany and the UK. Uh, over the last nine months, a few of the, the world's larger companies, such as Dong Energy and Statoil, um, who are oil and gas companies really transferring or creating new industries, have become very aggressive in their approach to offshore wind. There are new markets coming up around the world, so they're all keen to be the first in those markets, and they're putting supply chain pressures on the developers, the wind turbine manufacturers, to really increase the size of the technology, which is going to happen in the next five years, and what makes our project so much more appealing from 2020 onwards in terms of construction commencement. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we talk a lot about um, battery and uh, and solar technology benefiting from semiconductor technology in other industries. And in this, we're seeing this benefit of these guys have done, you know, ocean oil drilling for years and years and now can perhaps see some transferable uh, competencies and competitive advantages to actually coming across and, and applying those same skill sets to offshore wind. That seems really interesting. Yeah, that's where all the world leaders are at the moment. Everyone's realised that you're dealing with fossil fuels, you've still got a potentially finite source. So most of the leading companies such as Dong Energy, who are uh, Danish oil and natural gas, we're an oil and gas company. They're now a 100% offshore wind developer. Statoil, uh, Iberdrola, the likes have generally started and have their genesis in other more established industries, mm -hmm. but have now moved into this new frontier. Andy, one of the things that we sort of look at in terms of gas, the, the marginal cost, and coal has got a marginal cost. We talk about the energy, obviously, from wind being free, the commodity being free, but if you were to look at this from a, a marginal cost point of view, what is that project like this going to look like in terms of a marginal cost, in terms of operational maintenance and all those sort of things? What does that come in in terms of a megawatt-hour cost for a project like this? Yeah, look, it, look, it's still up in the air. Look, we're working on projected figures at the moment. It's really hard now. We're at a stage where the industry is markedly going to change from 2020 onwards when the new technology comes in. Rather than going to specific prices, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that the levelised cost of, of energy has probably come down about 20% in the last two years and is forecast to continue dropping. So the margins are really going to be at their beneficial stage once you're well into the operational life of a project when you're benefiting from low resource costs, which are really nothing. It's more the, the O&M costs. And in terms of offshore activities, what are the sort of areas that would need to really be avoided in terms of offshore wind? You know, obviously things like uh, shipping channels or uh, marine ecosystems. Is there any particular areas that you'd want to avoid in terms of deploying this technology? Yeah, look, we chose this area specifically because we'd undertaken detailed uh, studies with WSP Parsons Brinkhoff in the middle of 2015. The key things you need to avoid, as you noted, are shipping channels. So the area that we're in is, uh, lies just east of the main shipping channel to service the offshore oil and gas, which is further to the east in, uh, in Bass Strait. You need to be particularly careful of marine life and fishing. Fishing is a key area of interest for us, so we've been heavily involved in consultation with the fishing industry down off the south coast of Gippsland. You've got to be very aware of the marine life as well out there as well. So we know from all our initial studies that fishing is fairly light in the area, but there is a lot of gummy shark fishing. Bird life is quite minimal in the area. So we've, through our study, look, we know there's about 27 coastally based bird lives or birds. Not as much going through the area. Migration for birds doesn't really occur in the area. It's generally south of New Zealand and up the centre of Australia. So we've done a lot of those in initial tests. But you do need to be wary. It's difficult in other areas. 
I look at uh, Taiwan, which is a new burgeoning area for offshore wind, really high wave heights, up to about 22 metres, very deep water and different bird life and marine life out there. So you need to be really careful. And obviously with the seabed, you need to ensure that you can actually install these very large look foundations and then towers on top of them mm. and ensure that you're not causing damage to, to the seabed. Beyond the Beyond Zero show, and we're speaking to Andy Evans from Offshore Energy, and uh, we we went f- there from speaking generally about offshore wind to your specific project, and so to, to maybe go there in that direction more formally, it's the Star of the South project, two gigawatts, approximately two hundred and fifty turbines, which are going to be pretty massive from from what we're hearing, at a, a project cost of around eight billion dollars. So it ain't small potatoes. You, you definitely. Um, uh, I've got a few coins I can chip in. That's <laughs> right. You want, I'll, I'll chip see, in a bit for the eight billion. We're collecting for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get the tin out. That location you spoke about. So it's uh, east of Wilson's Prom, off the Gippsland coast. What attracted you to the location specifically? You know, for, as uh, very uh, dangerous amateurs, uh, Matt and I were thinking <laughs> Basslink. We're thinking yeah. a replacement of of capacity coming into Melbourne from um, that when after the, the coal plants um, die down. So all those things factored in, I guess. They did. Look, the physical aspects of the first thing that we looked at. The wind resource is fantastic. There are two Bureau of Meteorology masts not far from the proposed site, one at the uh, southern tip of Wilson's Prom and one from a set of islands called Hogan Islands, about 42 kilometres south of the site. So we know that the wind, based on our modelling for the last 10 years, is very consistent uh, and it's of a high class. Water depths were fantastic, so you know that you construct it. But a key thing, and probably the strategic reason behind choosing the area, was the knowledge that there were going to be coal closures down there. Now, that was important for a couple of reasons. It meant that there would be energy supply issues potentially into the future. At the moment, or pre-Hazelwood closing down on the 31st of March, 80% of Victoria's energy supply comes from the Latrobe Valley. So you take Hazelwood out, that's 1.6 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. You're already down. You've got other... All the other coal generators down there, the other three, your lawn and the two Loyangs. Your lawn's forecast to come off in 2032. Given the Hazelwood experience, I think the market predicts it will be a lot earlier than that. And the, the two Loyangs are forecast in the 2040s. So most of the larger generators have made those commitments to not renew them or prolong them. But I think there'll be more of a switch to them coming off earlier, which only creates more opportunities for us. We're aware of the grid capacity availability there at the moment. We've been working with AEMO for quite a while. So look, our project will be a minimum of two gigawatts. That's based on current technology. So it could be up to three gigawatts or more, but we've got all the, the basic foundations in place Basslink is there. And not, not the foundations of the turbines. Not yet. Just, no. just, just the, yeah, sorry, go on. Not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Well picked up, actually. <laughs> Look, Basslink it does uh, cut across the eastern part of our proposed exploration area. Uh, we've been working closely with Basslink. We, we have to be very cautious. Their cable was down for over 150 days last year. So, look, one of our options is looking at whether we follow the path that Basslink has taken at the moment. We wouldn't be tapping into their cable or their assets, but it certainly makes sense if we could somehow piggyback on using a similar route that they are using. We would seek to use, we'd have undersea cables, but also underground cables as well. We're aware there are a lot of social issues around overhead wires, particularly down in Gippsland and Latrobe. Obviously, they go all the way into, into Melbourne, so they can be a bit of an eyesore. So we'd like to lessen some of those issues, and it will certainly be a lot more, a lot easier from an approval perspective uh, if we do go underground. 
And, and Andy, I'm trying to paint a picture for the listeners in terms of, you know, the, they can't visualise this. How big an area are we talking here? How far off the coast? What does this look like from the seashore here? Yeah, there's a couple of aspects to that. We're looking at a, a space of 574 square kilometres, about 10 to 25 kilometres off the coast of South Gippsland. So really ranging. It's about 37 kilometres east of Wilson's Prom from the west, stretching through to look south of Yarram. So if you're looking at the mainland towns, it's really Welsh pull through to Yarram. We've chosen the area specifically on the basis that there shouldn't be any, or there won't be any visual impacts. If you do get a map in front of you, if you haven't been down to the area, look, it's a beautiful part of Victoria. There's a series of islands that stretch pretty much from Wilson's Prom to the start of 90 Mile Beach, which are located only 500 to a kilometre off the shore of that coastline. So you can't see beyond the islands, let alone out to sea. So there'll be lesser of those visual issues. And you mentioned, Andy, before about the issues to do with those closure of those uh, coal-fired generators. We know now from the Finkel Review that people are going to be given three years from the time they have to notify three years out. If you were to hypothetically start, you know, today, what's the construction time, approximate construction time for a project like this? Yeah, look, there'll be a feasibility study phase of, of three to five years. At the end of that five years would be at you know what is known as financial close. So you've got all your contracts ready and your finance ready to draw down. So we'd look at commencing construction if we were awarded our licence and started the studies by the end of this year, look at commencement of construction mid-2022. Right. It would then be built in phases, uh, generally probably four phases. If we're looking at three gigawatts, that would be four phases of 750 megawatts. Each of those would take two and a half to three years before they would be live and generating. So they'd be done in tandem. But Yeah, and it, and it would probably work well with the closures of the coal assets. So you would be able to bring on more capacity as they, as they drop off. Yeah, plenty of time. And the key thing for us, the beauty of this project, and it's certainly been recognised by the politicians, are all the, the economic and uh, employment opportunities for the local community. That was another reason for choosing the area. There's 50 years of offshore oil and gas experience and 100 years of coal mining and coal generation experience. So if ever you're going to pick an area to to utilise the local people, Gippsland is fantastic. And go from being um, underground miners to being deep-sea divers. <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting change of career, isn't it? Andy, you mentioned earlier on about this issue about capacity and the fact that it comes on at the sort of right times. One of the th- issues that the NEM's been grappling with is this idea around the fact that we tend to put a lot of our capacity, our onshore capacity was built in South Australia, and so it's all very highly correlated in terms of mm. when the wind blows. How does the capacity of an asset like this or will the asset, the asset like this work as a complement to the overall NEM relative to some of those existing onshore uh, wind farms we've already got? How does it fit into the overall capacity picture here for wind farms? Yeah, look, if you're certainly if you're looking at Victoria and we're looking at the introduction of renewables, which is going to happen regardless of, of who is in power, the energy mix is going to change. This project is going to be less intermittent than a number of renewables coming on. If you're looking at the Victorian market feeding in, in Western Victoria, as I noted earlier, the onshore wind and solar are fairly correlated to each other, generally daytime uh, energy generation. And there's also going to be issues in Western Victoria. There are significant grid constraints. There's only about two gigawatts worth of available space there before at least a billion dollars worth of upgrades is, is needed. So over the next few years, getting a lot of renewables into Western Victoria is going to be fine, but we're going to have a complementary uh, wind profile, which is blowing more consistently at times when the alternate renewable sources aren't blowing. Look, that will get fed into an energy mix, which is going to be radically different from where we're at at the moment. 
Uh, everyone's obviously interested about baseload, which is, of course, a requirement. We're very loath to use that in respect of our project. Um, but it's going to sit more neatly with some of your traditional baseload generation like, like coal and gas and provide a bit more of a support. And obviously batteries come in as well to provide some form of solution. So all so you spoke about the the long feasibility period. Um, is that where all of this is sort of cast in concrete a little bit? So not just the feasibility technically, but also of the the bankability. Is that is that what the, that process is? Is it about giving certainty to regulators, but also potential investors? Is that what the process is yeah. all about? Look, most of it is about uh, look appeasing future investment into the project. The, the feasibility study will go through, the key things it'll do is verify that there's a significant wind resource there, that that's where the generation comes from. So whilst we have Bureau of Meteorology data, we'll be putting in place either fixed met masts which go into the sea, there's probably no more than two of those, but more likely using what's known as LIDAR or FLIDAR, uh, which is sonar-based uh, measurement equipment. So it's either a couple of what I would call speedboats, which have the sonar equipment on them, which will sit out in the ocean. They can read up to 20 kilometres away. Usually you'd set it at the hub height, which is uh, where what's called the nacelle will sit, where the, the generation generator and gearboxes are. That's about 120 metres above sea level. So that whole three-year period will go through working out, do we have a resource and are the other components of the project capable of being performed at the right cost to justify proceeding with the project. And and obviously we're, we're awaiting this feasibility study, um, Andy, and you're looking to get investors on board, but is there a buyer for this power in it and what's the likely ownership of this uh, asset going to be long term? Yeah, there are probably three routes. So I'll deal with, with buyer of power. You may have heard a bit about the Victorian government are looking at introducing their Victorian Renewable Energy Target Scheme. So this project will sit outside... The RET, the Renewable Energy Target, which is a Commonwealth target, which relies on the forfeiture and creation of green certificates. So there's the Victorian scheme if that gets introduced. So that's a look a reverse auction scheme where you bid a price for the government to, to purchase that electricity. Uh, that's being forecast to come in or legislation be introduced in the next few months to support 5,400 megawatts of new generation before 2025. That's one route. The next one is looking at private offtakes or power purchase agreements, generally with most of the major retailers. They're a bit like hen's teeth. They're very hard to get at the moment, but there'll be a changing market going forward. Alternates that are now coming in are potential corporate purchase uh, agreements with some of the larger buyers of electricity, particularly in Victoria. You might want to look at merchant, which is just selling into an open market. You certainly want to, wouldn't want to do that with too much of a project, particularly of this size. But if you look at the wholesale prices at the moment, it's actually a really good alternative compared to some of the PPAs that are being offered at the moment. And what would be a sort of PPA price for something like this, um, Andy Ballpark? I'm not stonewalling you here. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Look, that's a to-be-determined. I mean, you'd certainly look at the moment at onshore wind PPAs, which are unbelievably low the last few months. If you look at Stockyard Hill, you're looking at... What did that one come in at? Between... $55 and $56 per megawatt hour. 
Yeah. Um, usually for that, I believe it's an eleven-year period. Okay. So, so when you talk about someone potentially signing a PPA, that could be anybody on the grid, right? It doesn't have to be someone with proximity to the site. How would that work? No, look, uh, under the energy market, r- realistically, your PPA can be extracted from anywhere. Right. So it's not the actual energy that we create is going to be delivered to someone who purchases green energy. There are a lot of contracts within the market where there are swaps as to the actual physical energy being purchased. Yeah, fair enough. You know, we've obviously had a number of people on this show who also talk about the potential for pumped hydro in Australia to have a, a great potential for storing energy, especially when we have a lot of these um, renewable projects coming on board. Have you identified potential projects perhaps with pumped hydro or any other storage schemes that could potentially be paired with this project to improve its bankability? Is that something that you've, you've considered as well? Look, not so much. We see that more as a market issue. Uh, in determining how the energy mix is dealt with. Certainly it's an attraction for a project like ours or it's going to become more of a requirement that there is at least some battery storage capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we see some of those issues around pairing with, with pumped hydro as being more issues for, for governments and grid operators. So you're confident enough in in the bankability of the project that you won't you don't need to try to involve include that to, to guarantee that. Look, it creates new levels of complexity. Mm. It means trying to find something that can be married in carefully and understanding what the investor actually wants. At the moment, all our potential investors, which I know we'll we'll get into, are internationally based and looking solely generally at one type of generation. But there are always going to be alternatives that may be paired with a project like this. If you're a price taker and you're confident in your production, then, yeah, you might as well keep it simple, right? Yep. And, Andy, I'm always curious. I mean, no doubt you've picked this spot, but if you had a sort of a couple of, of keen uh, renewal energy advocates like Anthony and I who were looking for whatever was number two on your list in terms of Australia, where are the other places that you sort of – that didn't quite get the, the Guernsey but were close to being commercial? What, what are the other opportunities for this technology yeah, look, around there, Australia? There, there are about four other sites. I won't peg them on the map for you here and now. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other sites. This, this is by far the best in Australia. It's the key one in Victoria. The challenge for these sorts of projects is that you need a massive supply chain, so they need to be of size, particularly if you're going to attract international investment. And at the same time, you need to have a large market nearby so that you can put projects of this size and their supply into a market. So you can't deploy them in states where you've got smaller capital cities or smaller markets. Okay, so we're talking off the coast of Nowra. Yeah, right. We're talking right. Hunter Valley. Yeah, that's uh, right. yeah. yeah, look there, look there. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, we've just got to wrap, wrap things up, unfortunately. Uh, we've come to the end of the show. Is there anywhere where people can find out a bit more about yourself, get in contact, or uh, find a bit more about the technology? You certainly go, in, in the first instance, to offshoreenergy.com.au. There's only one E in the middle of offshore. That's the first place to look. We've been deliberately very low-key for a number of years. We've been working very hard with the government to get the rights. So we've been very wary of being out in the market saying we're going to do this or we're going to do that without having those rights locked in. But it's now got to the stage where the community and everyone in the industry was already well aware of it. Uh, and there was certainly government keenness and local government keenness for the people of Gippsland to be aware of what was going on in their backyard. Yeah, it's time to get your musk on. Get, get yes. a bit more out there. <laughs> yes. I've got a Twitter account. But, you know. Yeah, okay. We've been listening to the Beyond Zero Show. We've been speaking to Andy Evans from Offshore Energy. And uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that at bze.org.au or 3cr.org.au. My name's Matt Grantham. I'm Anthony Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.